0: i fm 101.9 megahertz of life. And welcome back to Soul to Soul. I am Rabbi Ari Kievman and it's great to be with you here again on this fabulous, wonderful afternoon. So we are going to be concluding our series that we've been discussing over the last weeks, which was all about the... Prayers, why we pray in Shul. And the truth is, there is a lot that we discussed over this time. And there's much to share and discuss about it. Maybe we should recap very briefly of some of the ideas that we did discuss. Because as we explained that prayer is something that we all do every day. But the point is that it's got to be something that is unique, that is individualistic, that is coming from your heart. And we contrasted the Hebrew word tefila, which means to connect versus the English word prayer, which means to beseech, to request. And prayer is not about requesting, although it includes our requests. We do ask God for our personal needs. And we scanned, we perused the biblical literature and the scriptures, and we saw so many different prayers of so many of our great ancestors and venerable personalities. But the idea was that they each made themselves vulnerable before God. Whereas Chana says to God, dear God, I just cannot do this without you. King David says, almighty God, I couldn't have done this without you. So we see that all of them are prayers from the heart. It is personal. It is a connection with Hashem, conversing with God. And the question that leads us to today is, if that is the case, then what is the purpose of going to shul? If prayer is a very personal matter that I'm connecting to God in my own personal, individual way, then why am I going to shul and praying with so many others? So since we considered and discussed so many of these matters that I hope we've all gained from, I'd like to share with you today the purpose of praying in a group setting, why it is at those specific designated times that we go to shul, why in the morning, evening, and Afternoon, and evening. And why, indeed, it says in Shulchan Arach, that the ideal place for a person to pray is in Shul with the community. im A person should ideally endeavor to pray in Shul with the congregation. Now, obviously, some Shuls have prayer services every day. Some only on Shabbos and Yom Tov. Whatever the case is. And by the way, I'm going to do a personal quick plug. If you work in Santon Central, in the CBD, or you know anyone who does live or work in that area, we have three minyanam a day at our shul, Chabad's Gunnison Kainas Center, the Santon Central shul. Every day, Shachar 6.30 in the morning, Mincha at quarter to six in the evening. We always have the best freshly brewed coffee in town. We've got a cappuccino machine that is beyond what you'll get at any Coffee shop. We've got the top, and we've also got an espresso for those who prefer that, and also biscuits and cake. So just come any day. We also have lots of shiurin going on. So join us at the shul, and this is a shul that's open all the time. But of course, there are those that are only on Shabbos, and then of course we know shuls that have a chazin and a choir, and a whole. Uh, in my opinion, it's great to. I personally love the shuls with a choir, even though my shul has a different type of choir. In our shul, every member is a chorister. Everyone participates in the singing. And in the shuls where I used to go that have choirs that I love listening to, I also like it when the choir somehow engages the community to sing with with everyone else. Because just to be a spectator in shul, shul, they say there's no business like show business. And as a rabbi, I could say no business like shul business. But shul shouldn't just be a show. We're not coming to just watch the chazen and choir sing, we should be participating part of the service as well. So that is the question then. If the idea of davening is that we're contemplating God's majesty and we're striving to truly sense God's presence in our lives and we really want to develop a meaningful relationship with Hashem and those if you tuned in in previous weeks or attended our JLI courses, you know that the process of prayer is like climbing a ladder and there are different stages and grades of the ladder. The only part I could summarize for now to tell you is on the ladder of life, especially the spiritual ladder, it doesn't matter which rung you're at, but what's more important is the direction you're heading. And so if prayer is that idea that we're climbing the spiritual ladder, then why is there such emphasis on Tefillah B'tzibur on communal prayer, on davening with a minion, what value does the company of others, of praying together with the community, contribute to my personal prayers, to my personal needs? And to put it simply, why go to shul to daven, when I assure you it's really nice, I could contemplate much deeper, and reflect much more introspectively in... In the woods, in a private personal setting, at the hotel of my home. And the truth is, there are lots of challenges that people tell me they have with going to shul. You know, you got to keep up with the rest of the congregation. And for some shuls, it's the highway, the, the speeding highway of davening, going 150 kilometers an hour. And certainly in other shuls, some will say maybe it's too slow. And it's never right for everyone. Some people say the Chazan goes too fast, for others it for others goes too slow. And certainly that could conflict with our personally focusing on our personal individual prayers. So again, is there really a value, does this enhance our relationship with God by going to Shul to daven if you could focus better at home? Now I'm not just talking here about other types of distractions that sometimes people find in shul. Whether it's cell phones, whether it's the person next to you getting nice uh, tips in the stock market and where to invest. Those are other distractions. And the truth is there are benefits to those in shul as well. But if you go to shul to talk, then where do you go to pray? And then again, there are other distractions and that's why we have a, a mechitza because at Shul, we shouldn't be focused on the opposite gender. We should be focused on God and on the goddesses. So we have Shul as an opportunity to focus and to be focused on our relationship with God. And yet many people will say, well, they find Shul more distracting in that sense. And perhaps you could say there are other benefits. Let's let's talk about some of the benefits. I mentioned a second ago the social element where, yes, you could pick up some stock tips or maybe other ideas you could learn about how your friend's doing. Maybe someone who needs a shidduch. And there's an old story about a shul that used to have a big samovar, an urn, a kettle with tea and coffee and refreshments. As I mentioned, we have an arshul. And perhaps we have it because of this particular story. And the rabbi thought, well, there's too much talking going on in shul, too much networking. He didn't like this idea. So he canceled, he removed the refreshments. And in no time, he realized people in the community weren't doing well. They were coming to daven, they were coming to pray. It was a ultra-Orthodox synagogue. But all of a sudden, people's business matters were not doing so well. And some people's health matters And he was trying to figure out why this was. And when he conversed with one of his colleagues, with a senior rabbi, he was advised that he should return the samovar, that big tea coffee urn, to the shul and the refreshments as well. Because when people had a chance, you know, in offices, what happens at the water cooler is people converse with each other. And when they have a chance to converse with one another, there's an opportunity... To hear how each other is doing, how people are. And when you hear that one person is perhaps financially struggling, you might know a way to help them. When you know that somebody's looking for a business, you know where to advise them to go. You know someone needs a shidduch, you know somebody's health matters. And of course, that is the benefit, the social networking. And this isn't a new phenomenon. In fact, this is something that's discussed in the Gemara. Throughout our history, Jewish communities were formed around the shul. And that was a frequent place where people gathered. And like I said, this is where we formed that tight-knit bond of Jewish communities. Not just through prayer, because when you're praying, you're talking to God. But when you have the opportunity before and after prayers to discuss, to show concern for others. And the Talmud in Masech Tassika describes... How one who did not see the great synagogue of Alexandria of Egypt. I'm not talking about synagogue in Alexandra Township. I don't know if there was any synagogue there. If anyone knows of a synagogue in Alexandra Township, please share with us. But we're talking about the one in Egypt, Alexandra, had a great Jewish community. And they describe it in the Gemara. They say it was like a large basilia with a colonnade within a colonnade. And in it there were 71 golden chairs corresponding to the 71 members of the great Sanhedrin. So the Talmud in Sukkah is describing to us what a magnificent shul it was. And then it goes on to tell us how the people sat in the shul. And it's interesting because they had like class seating. I'm not talking about first class, business class economy. The seating, people were seated based on their craft, on their profession. So the Gemara tells us that members of the various crafts would not sit mingled. Rather, the goldsmiths would sit with each other and the silversmiths would sit among themselves, and the blacksmiths with their com- compatriots, with their peers, and the coppersmiths with their colleagues, and the, wea- the weavers among themselves. So whenever a new person came into the shul, he perhaps would recognize his peers, the people who he worked with, the people of his profession, of his vocation, sit with them, and they would find out how each other are doing, how their livelihood is, and people would always express their concern and support one another probably the conversations were before after the service but the point is you see how in ancient times already the shul was a center of the community life and not only from a spiritual perspective but even economically people looked after one another so of course shul gives us the idea of the importance of friendship of community building and I want to go further into the idea of not just the social element of shul, but more specifically, we're going to talk about the congregational element of tefillah Bitzibur, of why we specifically like to daven together, not just for the shul attendance, but I'm specifically discussing the aspect of praying together. What's the benefit? What's the significance of joining together when it comes to prayer? We'll be right back. High FM, your station of choice since 2008. And welcome back to soul to Sol. I'm Rabbi Arikivan. And today we are talking about communities that pray together. Why do we have to daven and shul? Why can't you just daven at home? I once asked a friend, I said, hey, where did you pray today? He says at the Kotel. I said, that's far away. He says, no, I got a coattail in my house too. We all have walls in our homes. And I asked another friend, he Said He says, I said, I said, did you put on tefillin today? But in Hebrew, yeah, I put it in the closet. So the question here is, why do we specifically pray in shul and with the minion? And I want to share with you the idea, the power of group prayer that the Talmud discusses. And we discussed before about... The social element. Yes, you could go to Shulter Network, get stock tips and all. Nothing wrong with looking after each other. But here I'm going to share with you a piece from the Talmud. And this comes from the story of King... Well, we'll go a little further back in history. Because I think there's two powerful lessons that could be learned from the story. The first part of the story is King and I'm not sure how you say that in English. Hezekiah, who was a great king in Israel. And he was actually approached by the prophet of his time, prophet Isaiah, who was somewhat of a prophet of doom because Isaiah actually, he prophesizes the destruction of the temple. He prophesizes the exile that the Jewish people unfortunately have to endure. But King Chizkiah, who was a good, righteous king, was told by the prophet Isaiah that he's got to get his life in order, which is actually a euphemism it's a reference to referring to hey your days are coming to an end in fact king Chizkiyahu was actually very sick at the time and it's it's quite an interesting story king Chizkiyahu says to the prophet isaiah he tells him i have a a tradition a tradition from my fathers and the tradition is that afilu kherev atsavara shalada even if there is a sword at one's neck, we never despair, we never give up, because God always has mercy, and he tells Isaiah to leave, because he's going to pray to Hashem. And the verse describes that that, Isaiah, that the king Chizkiyahu, says, Vayasev espana he turned to the wall. Now kir could also mean, it could either mean wall, it could also refer to kirat libo, which means the depths of his heart. So here we're getting a deeper meaning of what it means. Libo, That he went, he entered the depths of his heart to pour his heart out to God. And Hashem tells the prophet Isaiah to go back and tell Chizkiyahu that he would be forgiven. And he has another chance on life. And in fact, the story goes, he lived another 15 years. So firstly, I think it's a powerful message to us that one should never despair, one should never give up hope. Because indeed, no matter how dire one's situation might seem, pray, Davin to Hashem. And hopefully God answers your prayer. Prayers are never unanswered. Sometimes we don't appreciate the answer. Sometimes we don't understand the answer. But just to understand the story, because why was Chizkiyahu meant to die. Why was he told put your life in order, you're coming to, your life's coming to an end and he was very sick? Well the sages tell us that unfortunately that Chizkiyahu he saw with prophetic vision that he had as well, Ruach Kodesh, or prophecy that he was destined to have children who were evil and because he was destined to have children who would not be following in his righteous path he said why have children? So, he engaged in whatever contraceptive these days, it's the cost of school tuition, but he said, he's, why should he have children? Bring children into this world if they're gonna be wicked and evil. And of course he was given a second chance, God says, that's not your concern, that's not your worry, you gotta do what you gotta do. And so, he had an opportunity for teshuva, he was able to, he was granted another 15 years, And he had brought children in this world. Unfortunately, those children did not follow in his footsteps, just as his prophetic vision told him. Although they say, sometimes we think things and so they become. So, whatever the case, he had a son named Manasseh. Manasseh was his successor as king, and indeed, he was one of those wicked evil kings in all of Jewish history. He caused a lot of destruction. He set up a lot of idol worship. And he promoted idolatry throughout the land. He even brought idols into the Beis Mikdash, into the Holy Temple itself. And he wantonly shed blood. He was a wicked king. The prophets of his time, chiefly Isaiah, Yishayahu condemned him and warned the Jewish people that if things would not improve, that national destruction would come upon them. And that's why he's known as this prophet of doom. Manasseh the king looked for some kind of pretext to have Yeshayahu executed. And so he creates this kangaroo court where he has a show trial and he accuses the prophet Isaiah of false prophecy. Now, of course, we know according to the Torah that a... Navi Sheker, a false prophet, has to be put to death. So he had this idea why Isaiah is a false prophet and deserves to be executed. You see, the Torah instructs us that if a person claiming to be a Navi, a prophet meets certain criteria qualifications, and his prophecies indeed are proven to be true according to that criteria set out in the Torah, then we have to listen to this Navi. Now being that his sole authority is based on the Torah's command that we have to obey him, if he contradicts the Torah, which the Torah states that its own prophets are eternal and unchangeable, but he then undermines the Torah, meaning he's undermining his own credibility, even if he proves to be to have prophetic vision. If he falsely prophesizes or in any way contradicts Torah, then he's considered a false prophet. So in this kangaroo court, at this show trial, King Manasseh accused Isaiah of false prophecy and executed him. And the Gemara in Yavamis discusses what was the pretext to kill the great prophet Isaiah that Manasseh followed. Says the Gemara... Menashe judged Isaiah and then he killed him. He said to Isaiah, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu Moses, our great teacher, quotes a verse, quotes a verse. Moshe Rabbeinu says that this is the verse, the verse Menashe quotes. Who is like, great like God, who is near to us whenever we call upon him. That's Moses' words. God's always accessible, 24-7. Interestingly, the verse in the Torah is verse 4-7 of Devar. And you, Prophet Isaiah, you say, Seek out God when He can be found. Call upon Him when He is near. That is contradictory to Moses. So he executed him. But indeed, we're left with a question. How could the Prophet Yeshayahu contradict the words of Ma'aseh of Masha says that God is always near and accessible whenever we call upon Him. Then how could Yeshaya say you could reach out to God when He is accessible? Dushra Hashem bihimata. And the Gemara explains further and tells us there's a difference. God is always accessible to communal prayer, but to the individual there are certain propitious times that are appropriate for divine favor, more so than others. So. The Talmud is basically telling us that indeed, when we pray as a community, God is always accessible. But to the individual, there are certain times that God is more accessible, more near. Whenever we pray to God as a community, the Gemara tells us that Hashem listens to our prayers as Moshe Rabbeinu says, Nika Hashem God is always available. God always cherishes and derives great pleasure, tremendous nachas from our prayers to Him. But when it comes to individual prayers, the Gemara tells us, like Isaiah taught, then God is a little bit more exacting on an individual's qualities. Do you deserve that your prayer be answered? Right. Some people come with entitlement. And do you truly deserve is the question. But God never rejects the prayers of a community. Now, this doesn't mean that the community automatically receives everything we pray for. How many times do we pray for things as a community, and then unfortunately we're disappointed with the results with the, with what happens? How many times here in our community have we gathered to pray for someone who wasn't well for situations, but it means that the prayer's always heard how much it, what much it taught it's always appreciated God always hears our prayers, and even if God doesn't answer it how we like, it doesn't mean that the prayer is rejected. For whatever reason, God has God has the answers and we will never comprehend and understand God's ways. But the prayer is always accepted and heard on high. And so, therefore, our sages have always instituted that whenever there's a communal need, we specifically gather together as a community and say to him, we say our prayers. We do this because God is always accessible as my Shabbat taught. And... As Isaiah says, that for individuals, we are more in a spotlight. Do we deserve or otherwise? So we see here that certainly there's a tremendous power according to the Talmud to communal prayer. And the question obviously is why? What is it that's so special about joining others in prayer? How is my personal communication with God, when I'm asking God for my personal needs, why is that enhanced in the company of others? And so we're going to explore a little bit more about that today based on wonderful, interesting, fascinating teachings of the Talmud. And let's start with one where the Talmud, let's call this the teamwork approach. And it's based on the idea that when a group of people works together to achieve any goal, I'm not just talking about specifically prayer. Whatever you do together as a team, what does team stand for? It's an acronym. Together, everyone achieves more. That doesn't say that in the Talmud, but what the Talmud does say is that the weight of a load that we could lift onto our shoulders is a third of the weight that we could lift together with another. Right? do they say many hands make light work, or the sum is far greater than the parts. So when we work with others, our own capabilities are themselves much greater. The Talmud says three times greater than if we worked on our own. And that we know from any experience. You try to lift weights by yourself, what could you lift? 50 kilos, whatever you're capable of lifting. But when you do it with somebody else, you could lift 150. We ease the load. And so the Talmud tells us that when a mitzvah is performed by a group of people together, any mitzvah, it has far greater value. And so the same thing applies to when we daven. Obviously, when you're lifting weights but spiritual weights we're talking here. So our own abilities are multiplied so many more times over when we work as a team. And the same we could apply to praying, how it's enhanced when we uplift each other's prayers, when we daven together. If we're praying and asking God for our own needs, hoping that our prayers will be accepted, even if our prayers on their own don't have what it takes to be accepted but it becomes a collaborative effort because we're praying together with others. And the Gemara tells us when you pray for someone else's needs, and here we're not even talking about praying for someone else's needs, we're talking about praying for our own needs. But all the more so, if we pray for someone else's needs, then our own prayers are answered first. Because God says, you're showing concern for another, I'll show concern for you. So that is the teamwork idea, is that together we go much further. But we could take that even further because... Another perspective about davening with others is explained in the Kuzari. Perhaps the idea we said now is tefillah bitzibur, That means when I'm praying in the company of the community, I'm praying for my needs, you're praying for yours. But the Kuzari tells us the idea of, of tfilat hatsibur, the prayer of the community. And he gives a, a nice metaphor that perhaps is very relevant here locally. And he says, you know, when, God forbid, you have a home invasion, a robbery, and, you know, unfortunately it happens right here in Joburg, All too often, if you only work on securing your home, guess what? These bandits, these thieves, they're clever. They're going to come up with another way of breaking into your place. And perhaps you make it all the more attractive. Oh, you have all that security. What are you hiding behind there? But when we work on securing the whole neighborhood, better yet, educating people to be why they shouldn't be thieves, why they shouldn't be taking other people's stuff. But when we work as a community to protect the community, then we've achieved so much more. If one blocks the blood flow, the circulation of a limb in their body, if, if just my wrist, my whole body stands to be at risk of not having oxygen because of that blockage of circulation. And the same thing applies when I'm only focused on myself. So if I'm sitting there praying at home, I could only go so far. I could only protect my home to a certain degree. But when we join together, when we're all praying as a community, because of the diversity of the people all praying together, then it's that much stronger. Just as when we are protecting our neighborhood together. And therefore, just think about this concept. The word tzibur, the word for community, is comprised of three letters. The first is a tzadik, which stands for tzaddikim, a community a congregation as the righteous. The second letter is a bays, that symbolizes and the intermediate. And then we have the resh, the reshayim, so we have everyone joining together and there's no focus on anyone's specific personal credits, deeds, um, what one deserves over another. And the, the same thing, we know a concept about the katarat, the incense, the spices that were blended together for the Beis HaMikdash, for the temple. That if you look at the ingredients, there was one called galbanum. In English, it's called galbanam, uh, but in Hebrew, it's called chalbanah. I imagine if you are reading galbanum in Afrikaans, it's probably also Galbanum, But the idea is, on its own, it has a very unpleasant odor, a very sour taste. But when it's mixed with everything else, like, like garlic on its own, <laughs> it might not have a very pleasant smell for everyone. But when you mix it with other foods, it adds a delicious taste. And the same thing we could say... When we all join together, all types of Jews, we constitute a tzibur, a community. And because the collective effort of the communal prayer requires that everyone be part of it, then we all become worthy and we don't focus on one's misdeeds. In fact, the Talmud says, God doesn't focus on a person's faults, on a person's shortcomings, on one's flaws when we pray together as a community. So here we have another added advantage, is that when we're praying together a community, we have another great benefit of the joint effort of everyone coming together. We'll be right back. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. And welcome back to Sol to Sol. Great being with you here this afternoon. We are talking today about communities that pray together. We are trying to find the meaning of why do we go to shul to pray? For what reason? For what purpose? Maybe It's more meaningful and purposeful when I could pray in solitude in the comfort of my own home or maybe in nature. And we've been explaining so far the benefits of communal prayer. And just to recap something we discussed so far, we spoke about the idea Tefillah bitzibur, which the idea of that is that our prayers are assisted by the prayers of others coming together when we pray for others and we uplift each other's prayers like a teamwork. And then we discussed another one is the idea of when we're asking on behalf of the community instead of asking for ourselves. And just think of so many of our prayers. We say it in the plural. Shema koleinu, Hashem <in> should hear our prayers. Bare chaleinu, God should bless us. Rifa'inu, God should heal us. All the prayers are in the plural because our concern is not just about ourselves, but about everyone else as well. And that is, in fact, a very important point that I think is worthwhile. The idea, it explains in Ayom Yom, That when a person discusses their personal divine service with a friend and they study together, what does it say? We have two godly souls pitted against one natural soul. How is it possible? Two people, why do we have two godly souls against one natural soul? And One explanation that resonates with me on that is because my animalistic tendencies are very narcissistic and self-centered and so are yours. That is the nature of the beast inside of us. All it cares for is ourselves. However, the soul element, my godly soul, is more concerned with another. And perhaps a good way to look at this, I'm gonna ask you a question, is, it says, Loha amah chasid," a person of the, an ignoramus cannot be a chasid. But more specifically, person of the, an ignorant person is more precisely translated, as Am Haaretz, a person of the earth, one of the soil. Whereas Chassid is one who's more focused on, a pious person focuses on soul matters. What's the difference, I ask you, between soil and soul? You're thinking about it. Okay? Don't go so deep. Let's just look at the spelling. Soil is spelled S-O-I-L. It's about me, myself, and I, very self-centered, narcissistic. Whereas soul is S-O-U-L. So my animal, animalistic tendencies, my nafashah bahamis is all about me, myself, and I. That's the amarit. Look at an animal. It's always looking down at the soil. So, I get together with you. If I am just self-centered, I care about me and you care about you. But if I am chassid, I'm focused on S-O-U-L. What could I do for you? So the two of us gather together. Our godly souls care for one another. We have two godly souls, S-O-U, concerned with each other versus one animal soul of each of us. So we have two against one. So again, when we pray for others, God hears, God looks after our own personal concerns as well, and the idea that we discussed is when we're joined together as a community, and we're asking God on behalf of the community, and this is, this applies not just to our requests, you know, when it comes to the confessional prayers, what do we say? Try this in English. We have stolen, we have acted deceitfully, we have done wrong. Not an exact translation, but the idea that just try in a court when want us to make a confessional statement and say, We have done, excuse me, no responsibility. But when we say our prayers, there is a matter of responsibility. We are at fault when people in our community have done wrong. We have failed in our educational system if members of our community have acted deceitfully, have pulled off Ponzi schemes or done things that are unfortunately wrong. And sadly, we have such people in our community. And we, our schools, have failed in the educational system. We bear that responsibility, all of us, as a community. And the same thing when we say that, when we take that responsibility, we also ask God to grant us all of our prayers. We acknowledge that even if I didn't myself commit that particular offense, but when someone in the community did, why didn't I prevent them from doing so? So there is some responsibility that each of us bears. So this idea of praying together is something that we're all in it together. Tzibur the righteous, the pious, the average, the the wicked, we're all in it together. And our differences only contribute to the team effort because even though there are some who aren't deserving, but this is why even the less than perfect people can and should be included in the effort because God overlooks their shortcomings because we're praying as a community. And so, of course, group makes our prayers more worthy in that sense. But I want to take it a step further how communal prayer has an even greater effort. And this is a concept that Gemara tells us that the great sage, Rav Nachman, was unfortunately not well. And he was visited by his colleague, scholar Rabbi Yitzchak. Rabbi Yitzchak asks him, Why were you not in shul lately? Reminds me of a joke. Rabbi calls his congregant, says, Where have you been? We haven't seen you in shul for a long time congregant says, Rabbi, Rabbi, tells the rabbi how sick he's been in and out of hospital. The rabbi breathes a huge sigh of relief, says, Baruch Hashem. He says, what are you saying? Thank God I've been sick. No, no, I thought you went to another shul. Thank God you've only been sick. Now, old jokes aside, I know so many rabbis in this community accuse me and others, poach their congregants. If I poached your congregants, dear rabbi, colleague, then why is my shul not that fool? And if that if you were that good, then your congregant would be committed to you at your shul. So stop looking for excuses as to why you're missing congregants, or why your congregant moved to another shul. Because if, firstly, if they were that committed to you, if they were that loyal, you wouldn't have to worry. If you were exciting them, inspiring them, and keeping them engaged, you don't have to worry that they're going to my shul or any other shul. Okay, that rant is over. Another rant I got to make at the same time is, When I find a local congregant comes to my shul, and God forbid I hear a complaint, whether it's from committee members or what, how did you steal our congregant? And I say, Halavai, they would come more often. But don't we want the ideal is that everyone should become Shomer Shabbos, that they observe Shabbos and walk to the shul that's closest to them? So why all this clutching and complaining? We need to work on that in our community and those feelings. But back to the story in the Gemara. The story can be found in Gemara Brachas. The very beginning, and Dav Zayin Ahmed and Dav Ches Aleph, and the Gemara says, Rabbi Yitzchak tells him, "I haven't been to shul." He says, "Because he hasn't been well." And of course, if a person's frail or sick, it's a good excuse, granted, why he can't come to shul. He wasn't playing cookie. He wasn't uh, playing golf. He wasn't running off. So Rabbi Yitzchak explains to him then, when you do pray at home, try to pray at the same time as the community. Why? And he explains to him because, as a verse says in Tehillim, "Vanit filasi lecha We say this every Shabbos afternoon at mincha. We also say it on the High Holidays when we open the Ark. So, when is it a time of divine favor? Right? We say here, "Vanis may my prayer to you be a time of favor." So the Gemara asks, when is a time of of divine favor? the Gemara answers, When is that at the same time that the congregation prays? So the Gemara tells us, how do we know that Hashem doesn't spurn the prayer of the masses, of the community? And the Gemara answers a verse that says, "Hain el kabir v'lo a verse in Job that Hashem will not spurn the prayers of the masses when we're a community together. As I've been saying, God will overlook the shortcomings, the flaws, the problems of the individual. Instead, look at us as a community instead of the individual being in the spotlight of their personal uh, flaws. And maybe when one asks for their own requests, praying alone, perhaps they are not deserving. But we pray as a community we see here how it's a time of divine favor, and more specifically the Talmud tells us as we know the 13 divine attributes of mercy. We sing it on the high holidays in the Shul. <laughs> We describe God's 13 attributes of mercy, God, God, benevolent God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in kindness and truth. God preserves kindness for 2,000 generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. God cleanses. We say this in our prayers only when there's a minion. So again, we see that's a moment of divine favor, specifically when we daven together with a minion, and it says that Hashem does not leave us empty-handed. So how do we arouse the divine mercy with these 13 divine attributes of mercy? But it could only be said again with a minion. This doesn't mean that when one prays alone, their prayers are not answered. But again, you're more in the spotlight. So here we see again the idea of praying together, how it has such a strong impact and has a tremendous added benefit. And I think if that's the case, as we've said here, that when you pray alone, then... Perhaps, like Chizkiyahu, you could break through the barriers. God always accepts our prayers. So certainly better to pray than not to pray, even if praying just alone. Chizkiyahu prayed and God answered his prayer. But we're showing the strength, how it's incommensurate, it's incomparable to our worthiness when we pray together as a community. So, I think this is a really powerful insight maybe one or two more before we go, is before we daven. I know this is in the Chabad siddur Many other siddurim have it as well, not all. It says in the Sidor, it is appropriate to say prior to our prayers, I hereby undertake to fulfill the commandment, the positive mitzvah, to love our fellow as ourselves. So before I can ask God for my personal requests, before I say Shema Yisrael, which includes V'yavtet HaShem to love the Lord your God, before that I described my love for my fellow human being. And I think there's two aspects here of praying with the community. One is the body of communal prayer, which is, yes, we're attending shul together with everyone else. We're praying with the rest of the congregation. But there's also the soul of praying with the community. And that's not just our joint attendance and the timing of our prayers together with everyone else. The To affect communal prayer is that we are in shul joining with the community, concerned for the community, worried about another. And that's why we spoke about the social aspect of prayer earlier as well. Am I concerned about another person's well-being? Am I worried about another person, how they're doing? And so when God sees that we all pray together, Shevetachim gam yachad, with unity, just think about the nachas that parents have when they see their children together when we pray together in shul and we put our differences aside as a tzibur, tzaddikim, and mishraim, all different personalities praying together, then tre- tremendous nachas. Such joy is felt on high by seeing all of us praying together and being concerned for one another's well-being. And that's why before we pray, we have to verbalize our love for another. It's like a friend of mine told me he came to shul once, it was a little late. And the people are all walking out of the shul. So he says, oh yeah, the prayer service is done. The man says, no, they were only said. Now we got to get them done. We don't just say words. It's not just a lip service. We actually have to practice the words. When we say to love the fellow as ourselves, that's only words if we don't put it to practice. So the idea is that, hey we got to put these ideas into practice in our life. So let me conclude with a few tips on how you can put this into practice in your life. Because we've really been discussing a lot of ideas over the weeks. And practically speaking, we got to find that balance between the personal individualistic element of prayer connecting with Hashem as well as bonding with the community. So here are my suggestions to you. Five suggestions. Number one. Try to daven with the shul. Try to go to make the minion. I gotta to express to you another frustration. There were individuals who I busted my chops for them when they had to say Kaddish and I made sure they always had a minion. I remember one individual lambasting me one day how we only had nine men in the shul and there wasn't a minion for him and he has to go to, and I worked hard to ensure there was always a minion and sadly, although we 99% of the time were 98% of the time get a minion in our shul. But sometimes those very individuals who I worked really hard for them to have a minion for to be able to say Kaddish, I don't see them. And that's personally frustrating. It really bothers me. Why don't those people come? Be there. If you're there for others, others will be there for you. Number one, try to go to shul as much as you can. This doesn't just apply to the men. I say this applies to the, we should all be there in shul. Number two, is before we daven, say those words, hareini mikabal alai, and Actually, internally think in your mind, how will I imbue that sense of unity in the community, not just in words of the prayer, but in action. What could I do to help another? Thirdly, try to pray together with everyone else, not just to be there in shul. Better to be in shul than not to. But when you're in shul, try to daven together with everyone. Now, of course, there's got to be that element of kavana, focusing on your prayers at your own pace, whatever page the chazan's on. I know for some people he's going too fast, for others too slow. Focus on your own prayers. Contemplate on the meaning, on the pirush hamilim, on what the words mean. Concentrate on the parts that perhaps resonate with you, that are more meaningful to you. And it doesn't matter if you fall a little bit behind. But finally, we got to be present with the community. We got to listen, respond to endorse the blessings by participating in the appropriate places and answering when possible because, after all, that's what makes us a minion. Now, of course, not all of us have all that ability and power to concentrate and meditate deeply on every passage. And that's why I say, find a passage or two that resonates with you, but don't forget the simplicity of prayer as well, of praying like you're a child. Pray to God. Connect with Hashem. Because indeed, as we explained Tefillah does not mean to pray, to ask God for things, but it means to connect with Hashem. And which friends do you like? Which rabbis do you prefer? The one who only knows to call you for a favor? Or the one who connects with you from time to time? Maybe they call you or go out for coffee with you, just asks, how you are doing? Sends you a WhatsApp to check in. Let's be like that with God too. Don't just remember God when we're in a time of need, but to be aware of God's presence in our life all the time. Wishing you a meaningful and purposeful and exciting great Shabbos ahead. Parshat Noach. Learn, connect, and Carpe Diem sees every moment you've got. Suck the marrow out of life.